0: If you're able, would you remain standing and turn to the first epistle of John? First John, we're going to read the first chapter of First John. First John chapter 1, starting at verse 1, this is the word of our Lord. and with us His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him, and declared to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your Spirit be present with us as we consider this book this morning. For us, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There is great value in systematically studying the Word of God. The practice of going through book by book of the Bible allows us to consider the whole counsel of God. It also gives us the opportunity to address whatever the text is saying I'm I, well, not a fan of the guy, but I read a story about Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth was an, not a good theologian in the orthodox sense of the word. But one time he was preaching and on John 3.16 and said that God loved the world and the world includes Jews. We must love Jews too. And he's preaching that in 1939, Germany. And... People getting up and leaving mad and, you know, the protests at the door and the press comes and talks to him. That's when the press cared about what pastor said. They come and talk to him and he asked, why did you say that? They upset your members and so on. And Bart's response was, it was in the text. That's it. And and so preaching through the books of the Bible allows us to preach what the text is saying to address What the text is saying, the preacher then doesn't have to worry about who he may be offending, which you might think I don't worry about that anyway, but I do, um, because he's just saying what the text is saying. It's just what's the next passage, and you can just preach on that. Well, today we start a study on the first epistle of John to the church. Um, It's considered a general epistle because it doesn't tell us who he's particularly addressing Here, I'm not sure how long it will go. Um, The series, I'm learning not to make false predictions about the length of series like this one. I've been admonished by the session. No, they haven't. (laughs) Um, 1 John is a short epistle. It's a short letter, only five chapters, 105 verses, 2,141 words in the original language. The uh, The original language behind the English text that we have in front of you is the easiest, the simplest of the New Testament. When you study in Greek, that's the first book that uh, you translate uh, because it's it's an easy book to do so. And yet, it's a book whose theology is deep and complex. And that's being stated about it throughout the centuries. It is not easy to outline 1 John. Because uh, John is not following a linear argument, he's not going from this then to this to this. He 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 shapes his book more in a spiral progression, where he keeps on revisiting. Arguments as he moves to the conclusion, so you have a beginning and end, but the argument comes around and around, and he revisits arguments as he goes on through the book. So it's not an easy book to outline. As we go through the series, you're going to notice that, that we are going to be talking about this in chapter 1, and then all of a sudden we move from that, and then chapter 2 comes, and we go back to what we were talking about in chapter 1, and that's how John meant this book to, to be. The goal for today is to consider general things about the letter that will help us understand the book as a whole, what scholars uh, refer to as introductory material. Questions of who wrote it, why was it written, when was it written, what's the main message of the book. These are the things we're going to be considering this morning. And the first one is, who wrote it? And you might say, well, it says right there on top of my Bible, the first epistle of John. But if you read the text it doesn't tell us who wrote it. There's no introduction, there's no name on it. Yet there is very little doubt that the person who wrote first John is also the person who wrote the fourth gospel that we call the gospel according to John is the same person who wrote second and third John as well. And it is well established that the fourth gospel is written by the apostle John. So it is virtually certain that John the Apostle wrote this epistle that bears his name, no, the name of 1 John. And notice right off the bat in verses 1 through 4 how the language of verses 1 through 4 points to to the author being someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry. He talks about. Uh, that which we've heard, that which we've, we are, we, we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which our hands have handled, this, this indication that this person was an eyewitness, was intimate with the ministry of Jesus. As we're going to see in future uh, lessons, future sermons, there is a purpose for the language that John uses in these first few verses. We know that John was the youngest of all the disciples. It is probable and it's likely that he was a teenager when he was called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a close friend of Jesus alongside his brother James and, the, uh, and Peter. You see that, you know, he, was, as he has been one of three men invited to witness the transfiguration. We see that in his being one of three men invited to pray with Jesus on the night before he was crucified. And we see that in his own statement. Remember what's his favorite title for himself in the Gospel of John? This, yeah, this seems a little proudful, doesn't it? The disciple whom he loved. That's how he refers to himself in the book of John. If you read the Gospel of John, the name John is only used for John the Baptist. And when John is referring to himself, the author, he calls himself the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's also likely that there was a blood relationship between Jesus and John. They were cousins of some sort, uh, even perhaps first cousins. There's a strong tradition that says that Salome, his mom, was Mary's sister. And so they, they would have known each other for a while. And as far as we know, he was the only disciple, the only apostle, to die of a natural death instead of martyrdom. It, it, history tells us that he died at a, almost to 100 years old at the end of the first century. We know that he was exiled to Patmos, an island off to, of modern-day Turkey, west of modern-day Turkey during the reign of Domitian. And he was exiled, the book of Revelation tells us, for the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was sent there, shipped off to this stony island, rocky island, because he was proclaiming the word of God. We also know about John that he eventually became the pastor of the Ephesian church. And that was toward the end of the first century. Now think about with me here. Who was the first pastor of the Ephesian church? The Apostle Paul. Then it's likely that Apollos... Became the pastor there, according to Acts 18. Then Timothy becomes the pastor of the church, and then the Apostle John. And Timothy here is super, you no know, timid. Uh, he seems to struggle the fear of man, and it didn't help that he was the pastor between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. You, you never want to be the next guy at a church. You want to be the, the, the. You don't want to be the next guy that comes after a, a well-known guy. So the Apostle John wrote this short epistle, and it is impossible to know who his original audience was with certainty. Because it doesn't list here in his epistle. It lacks the original, the usual epistolary or, or letter introduction. It, there's no greetings in it and there's no conclusion either. If you look at the very last verse ends abstain yourself from idolatry. That's how the epistle ends. And notice the, the beginning. John just goes straight to the point. Even Galatians, when Paul skips all the niceties of other epistles, he still says, "Paul and you know, say the Lord bless you." But let me tell you that you're in trouble, sort of thing. Uh, here, John doesn't do that. You know, just uh, if you have your Bible open, just flip maybe a page or two to the beginning of Second Peter, and look, see the difference there. Second Peter starts. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are obtained, who have obtained like precious faith, and so on and so forth. But when you look at 1 John 1, it starts, that which was from the beginning. There's no introduction. So we don't know he is with certainty to whom he is writing. It is clear, however, that he wrote this letter to a group of people who were struggling with bringing together all the apostolic teaching concerning the person of Jesus Christ, the main theme of First John is Jesus Christ, his person and his work. Who he who he who he is and what he has done is the main theme of. First John, and it seems like his audience was struggling a little bit putting all that teaching together because some other false teachers had come in and were leading them astray. Another thing that's very obvious when you read First John is that John loved these people. Throughout the the letter he calls them my little children. And he's not just talking to the primary Sunday school department. He's talking to the whole church. He loved them. One thing that you notice, and I hope uh, maybe later today you can read uh, 1 John through. It's just only five chapters. And you notice that there's no quotations or reference to the Old Testament except for one. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. It says not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother and why did he murder him because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So that's the only reference to the whole to the Old Testament is this reference to Cain in 3:12 which would lead uh, us to think that he's writing to an audience that's going to be predominantly what? Gentile, Gentile. not as familiar perhaps with the Old Testament there. As I said earlier, you also know that John followed later on Paul and Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesian church, where he ministered till his death in A.D. 98. So, two years prior to the end of the first century of the Christian era. Putting all these things together, what are some conclusions we can arrive? Well, he may have written this epistle from from, from Ephesus to the churches in the Lycus Valley the churches in the Lycus Valley are those churches listed in the book of Revelation the seven churches that he had some familiarity with it those churches have been planted most of them by the Ephesian church so there's a connection there or perhaps he was traveling and heard of these false teachers and wrote back to the church in Ephesus as a love letter to them to explain further who Christ is and what he's done for them either way this is inspired word of God For us today, it's also helpful to know when a book was written. Now, the argument for the dating of 1 John is very convoluted. After this morning's Sunday school, I'm not going to put you through another one of these uh, arguments. I'm just going to tell you, spare you from all the arguments, and say that the conclusion is that 1 John was likely written in the early 90s. And I don't mean the glorious 1990s, but the early 90s, uh, AD 90s, 91, 82, 93, somewhere around that. And when I'm looking at the time that a book of the Bible is written, I, I like to see what is going on in the whole world around them. Then. And I have a, I, I like math, so I tend to gravitate towards that. Uh, as the book of 1 John is being written, there's a concept that's discovered Ptolemy discovers this concept, and it is he calculates for the first time pi. Do you know what pi is? Not the round, not the glorious banana cream pie that Lewis brought to church for lunch today. That's my name on top, by the way. Don't touch it. Don't. A, uh, but the mathematical three point is that one four, one six, and infinitely that allows us to put a man on the moon and all kinds of different things. That was calculated as first John is being written there as well. Now why was First John written? And this is an important question to ask. And when we are ask, we when we ask why a book of the Bible is written, we're asking what gave occasion to it. And what led the biblical author to write what he wrote is important in interpreting the book, because that's going to taint what he wrote. Now, remember that divine inspiration, it does not deny human intent. The authors of the Bible were not robots when they wrote the books of the Bible. They weren't zapped, and then all of a sudden the books came out. There are times where God dictated what he Wanted them to write, like in the Ten Commandments to Moses and some of the prophetic books. But in these letters, this epistolary literature, the writer is writing what he wanted to. Divine inspiration used everything about the author's life in order to assure that the final product was the inspired, inerrant Word of God. So when you read First John, we have John's words. It just so happens that those words are also God's words, exactly what God wanted to have. So knowing why he wrote, it's important for us to understand what's in the book. And the primary impetus for the writing of this letter was that John became aware of false teachers who had come into the church and were threatening her well-being. Do you realize that most of the New Testament came about because there there was trouble in the church? Uh, very few of the letters arise, arise uh, arose because things are going so... so as a matter of fact, there's not one of them that was written because things are so great that the apostles decided to write a letter to them. The problems come. The New Testament is written to deal with problems in the church. So, teachers had to come in. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 26... He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So that's why he's writing. I'm writing these things because there are some that are trying to deceive you. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Interesting is that Paul had warned the church about these false teachers during his last interaction with her, with her elders. As they met on that beach and off the Turkey Turkish coast, as Paul is heading back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, Paul says this in Acts 20 verses 29 and 30, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And then, if that wasn't enough, when Timothy became the pastor of Ephesus of the Ephesian church, Paul warned him as well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through Paul tells the young pastor, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women... "...loaded down with sins, led any, away by various lusts, away always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth." Paul was aware that these things were going to happen. He, again, in chapter 4 of Second Timothy, he says, "...preach the word, because there's going to be a time where the congregations are going to just want to have their ears tickled, and they're going to bring teachers into the church that all they want to do is itch their tickling ears." John then realized that these prophetic warnings came true. And that's why he writes 1 John. And he uses three expressions to refer to these wicked teachers and their false teachings. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them false prophets. In 2 John, verse 7, he calls them deceivers. And then throughout 1 John and 2 John, he calls them antichrists. So John doesn't hold back. You know, the idea of not calling people what they need to be called is a fairly new thing as far as preaching goes. Mm-hmm. If you read the Bible and then if you also look at through history, that's not been uh, the case. People have been willing to name names and call them what the Bible calls them. So notice that even... By the end of the first century, heretics abounded. That's why First John is being written. And where heretics abound, heresies abound much more. And you see that throughout the first century. John says in verse 18 of chapter 2 that many antichrists had already come. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist, and uh, that article probably shouldn't be there, but that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The New Testament writers believe that uh, the time from the resurrection of Christ is coming, that whole time is the last hour. And Antichrists are going to be coming as types of that final Antichrist that's coming before the return of our Lord And you can see that even in the first century, they're already very present there. And the worst thing was that these antichrists, these false teachers, had come from among the people of God. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And then chapter 4, verse 3 where John says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ uh, has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in um, the world. Well, actually, I meant verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. These people, these false teachers, not the the evil people out there, these are coming from within Christianity. And by the way that, that John writes, he think, he's saying that they're coming from that very church that he's writing to. And that's even more powerful because we're more likely to believe somebody that comes from among us than necessarily somebody who comes from the out, out, out there. So the Antichrist were at one time members of the church who left on their own accord and They left for doctrinal reasons and came back later as false prophets who were trying to lead the members of the church astray. One example of those heretics that we have a good record from the first century and seem to believe these things that John is combating was a man by the name of Cerinthus and his followers. And several church fathers tell us about this man who lived in Ephesus and John thought that... uh, he was a serious heretic, that the church is in big trouble, and that God is going to judge him. Uh, Irenaeus, which is a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, so some, a connection there, t- tells us this funny story about uh, John and Sorensus. He says this, There are also those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus... And perceiving Serenthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So not a lot of uh, willingness to associate with uh, false teachers there on, um, on Irenaeus' part. And that's the kind of man, that the kind of teaching a man, that John is fighting against in First John and these false teachers were teaching false theology and bad ethics. There's two parts for their teaching. They were teaching what was not true, but also wrong practices as well. They were teaching that Jesus did not live in the flesh. They were denying the incarnation of Jesus. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. You acknowledge the Son as the Father as well. And then put it together with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now has a, and is now already in the world. So this is these teachers are denying that Christ came in the flesh. They were what uh, theologians called docetists. They denied that Jesus had a real body, either by saying that he was a hologram kind of thing, an apparition, just a ghost sort of thing, that you couldn't touch. Thus, John in chapter 1 says, that which I've touched, to say that he actually have a body. Or that he was Jesus the man, and that at his baptism, the Christ came upon him, and then before his crucifixion, the Christ left, so only Jesus the man died. It is interesting that the early church struggled not with the divinity, the deity of Christ, but with the humanity of Christ. They had a hard time understanding how God could become men, which the church today tends to be the opposite. They tend to have a hard time with the deity of, of Christ. Uh, the false teachers also claim that faith in Christ didn't have to result in obedience. So not only are they teaching bad theology, they were teaching bad ethics. That you can come to faith in Christ and that doesn't have to have any impact in the way that you live your life. You can see that in the if claims of verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I don't know if you remember as we read, there's all, all kinds of if statements. And if you say this, then this is what you need to conclude. If you say this, this is what we need to conclude, showing that, uh, for example, they said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Right? If you say that you don't If you're not sinning, if you don't ever sin, you are a liar. That's bad ethics. And also you can see that in the exhortations to love the brethren. These false teachers are saying, yes, you can believe in Jesus, and you don't have to have any sort of love for the brethren. And John says that's an impossibility. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And then he describes how he walked in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, where he says, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, then you're, you're a liar. You don't love God because it's impossible to love God without loving the brethren that are around you. Ultimately John wrote this letter to protect the church he loved. John Stott in his commentary on 1st John says John wrote to protect his readers, his beloved children, and to establish them in their Christian faith and life. Thus he defines his own purpose in writing as being to make our joy complete so that you will not sin and so that you may know that you have eternal life. Joy, holiness, assurance, these are the Christian qualities the pastor desires to see in his flock. And then the last question, what what is it that John wrote? And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the main message of this letter is that Christian assurance of faith comes through objective standards. Look at chapter 5 verse 13. These things, so 5:13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that or so that you may know that you have eternal life. So I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Which is different than John, the Gospel of John, when he says, I'm writing this so that you may have eternal life. First John is that you know that you have eternal life, that you have assurance. And he says that assurance comes not from some subjective secret knowledge that the teachers were were offering, but from objective tests that you can see if they're present in your life then you can be assured that you know Christ. And John says there are three simple tests for you to know if you truly are saved. The first one is what you believe concerning Christ. Do you believe what the Bible teaches concerning the person and the work of Christ? In chapter 5 verse 10 John says if I'm in the right book, it would be helpful. In 5.10, he says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So you do you believe what the Bible says concerning Jesus? It's not how you feel about it. Is Do you believe that? Do you believe that to be true? That what the Bible says concerning Jesus is true. His person is and His work. Test number two. Is your life marked by obedience to the Word of God? So that's in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, it says, By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in Him ought Himself also To walk just as he walked. Not perfection, but is the movie of your Christian life a movie of growth and holiness? Is the movie of your Christian life a movie that shows somebody who is striving by God's grace to obey what the Bible says? Now, there are snapshots of our lives. There are pictures sometimes of moments of our lives that don't seem like we are trying to obey God. And that's why I'm saying is the overall movie. If your story is told on the screen silver, is that going to be a story of people who are striving to obey by the grace of God what the Bible says? That's what Peter. That's what John says. That's an evidence that you know God. And then the last test we already read about it is: Do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? You may believe everything that's right about Christ. You may strive in your personal life to obey God. But do you love the brethren? And here, this is these are not faceless brethren. These are not the brethren way far away, right? No, these are not the missionaries in Timbuktu or Djibouti or, uh, you know, some place you've never heard of that we pray so ferv- fervently for and love them so much. The brethren that John mentions here, that he says, are you loving them? Are those that are close to you who have the opportunity to annoy you. Right? That's where the love for the brethren is demonstrated. Is the people in front of you in the pew? Is the people behind you in the pew? Is the people next to you in the pew? Do you love the brethren? Do you believe what the Bible says concerning Christ? Is your life a demonstration of a desire to obey God by his grace? And thirdly, do you love the brethren? This is how we know that we have eternal life, objectively listed in the book of 1 John. And by God's grace, we're going to see that through the next few, whatever many times we look at the book of 1 John. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this epistle. We pray that as we journey through it, that you would greatly bless us with increased knowledge of Jesus Christ, increased practice of your word. Increase love for the brethren. We pray that you be working mightily through this series in us all for asking in Jesus name. Amen.